Um, And also something else I would say, it's it's not just the recruiter. I feel that um, whoever is on J1 applying for, you know, like a J1 position should do their due diligence Um, because especially because a lot of us are IMGs from, you know, different kinds, like different schools, for example, you have to make sure number one that like, the state license especially because at the time you're applying you haven't passed your boards um some of some of the states like i remember like some states will like follow like say uh, back then i think now california has a more uniform you know like i don't know like they have a more uniform accepted medical school directory but you know back then they were like a california list of uh, you know approved medical schools and some states will follow that, you know, so you have to also just do your due diligence before you even like go, even if the recruiter deals with J1 people, um, you have to make sure that like, you know, you're someone that is capable of being licensed in the state that, you know, that you're going for your J1 waiver, especially if you haven't passed your. Attention all international medical students and graduates. Are you looking to improve your residency competitiveness and achieve your dream program match? Look no further. Introducing the 2023 IMG Roadmap course, the online program that will boost your personal and professional growth. This comprehensive course offers life cohort-based coaching from a seasoned expert, me, along with personalized feedback, templates, and even demos. You'll leave with a solid understanding of your personalized IMG journey and the skills you need to enhance it. You'll ditch the overwhelm and the best part, you can learn at your own pace from anywhere in the world. Whether you're a first year medical student or a graduate seeking concise practical coaching to improve your CV, this is the perfect investment for a successful career in the U.S. The IMG Roadmap is here. Be the first to know when the doors open in April of 2023. Sign up right now at drninaloom.com forward slash waitlist. Again, that's drninaloom.com forward slash waitlist. The IMG Roadmap is the only podcast dedicated to coaching international medical graduates and success blueprints for this unique pathway. I am Dr. Nina Loom, your host, a previous IMG turned hospital medicine physician, healthcare administrator, speaker, and coach. I empower, encourage, and equip you with actionable steps that you can take towards the residency position of your dreams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMG Roadmap Podcast. If I sound rough, it's because I'm just coming off of laryngitis and I'm still trying to recover. But I invited Dr. Ifyama today to the podcast. She is an internist who will be going into critical care medicine fellowship here this summer. Um, But she's also an IMG, and I've known her several years. The good thing about today's episode is we're really going to get into the J1 process, which we both had. Um, I had the pleasure of spending some time with her when I was in Tennessee uh, doing my fellowship because she was working there at the time as well. So lots and lots to uncover today from J-1 visas and um, her IMG journey and even her path into critical care fellowship. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ify. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Thank you so much, Dr. Nina. You're the best. (laughs) (laughs) I've been looking forward to this day for a while now. I think I started planning like inviting you to the podcast many many years ago but it just never worked out that we had the time to do it yeah um, and I'm so happy that we finally get to record today so can you share a little bit about your background what makes you an IMG um and such okay um yeah like um from Nigeria and so anyway I went to um medical school in the Caribbean and um did my residency you know came over here to do my residency so that you know, basically makes me an IMG. And um, like you mentioned earlier, when I came, um, I had to, you know, like for residency, I had to go through like J1 visa because um, I had only my step one and my step two CK and CS results. And actually many programs sponsor J1 more so than they sponsor H1 for residency. So um, yes, I had to do that. 
Right. So I think, um, you know, that's a point of contention because a lot of people feel worried about starting residency on the J1 um, in general. So I also did residency on the J1. So, I, you know, I understand the perils of like, do I pick a J1? Do I pick an H1B? Um, what are the differences? But I just think it's probably important that we first of all define what that is for the listener. So the J1 visa, as you guys know, is um, a student exchange or alien physician exchange visa which allows for you to come into the United States and do residency and even fellowship training, but yeah. you must um, comply with a two-year requirement in your home country at the end of your training. Yeah. So from my understanding, it sounds like it was uh, a law that was put into place by the federal government, a process to um, exchange medical knowledge between countries by yeah. bringing their physicians over here, training and going back to the country to give back in a sense. Yeah. Obviously, you have some of us that have come here, taken that opportunity, but decided not to return to the home country to give back directly. Yeah. Even though we obviously do some kind of work. Now, contrary to the H-1B, which doesn't mandate that you do any kind of uh, give back or yeah. back. Um, so just trying to you know extrapolate on that for the listener. But before we even go into that visa stuff, tell us about your Caribbean medical school. Where'd you go to school? What was that process like for you coming to the United States that first time? How did that work out? Okay. Yeah. Well, actually how I ended up um, in the Caribbean was like a kind of long, longer, like, you know, more convoluted process because when I um, I actually first started medical school in Nigeria and um, I did like three years up until, you know, I took my second MBBS. Um, but like, I went to like a private medical school in Nigeria. So I was having like accreditation issues, like people were taking long to graduate, like it was supposed to be like a six year medical school, you know, degree, and people were taking like nine years. And I was like, well, I don't think I can wait this long. So um, actually, in the fourth year there, which was technically my third year, but I've I already spent four years there because um, the classes were long, you know. Um, so I, I started all over to like in the Caribbean. I went to um, a school called All Saints um, University College of Medicine, is in Saint Vincent and the Grenadines. I think now they changed it to Richmond Gabriel. Uh, I think the name changed to Richmond Gabriel. So, but it's in Saint Vincent and the Grenadines, and um, so I did like my first two years there and then I had to come over to the U.S. to do, you know, like my clinical rotations. And then after that, um, you know, like I took my exams while I was in my clinical rotations and then I, you know, entered into, um, I was lucky and I matched into residency. So tell us where you matched, because I think you went to a pretty popular program, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did. Like, I matched into a Morehouse School of Medicine. So, yeah, and that was actually my first choice. Um, yeah, so. Yeah. How many interviews did you get? I got 12 um, when I did, yeah. And were you applying on a visa at that time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was applying, like, on, like, J1, like, that was going to need a J1 visa. Yeah, what visa status were you on while you were doing your rotation? Yeah, so I was actually on a B1. So with the B1 visa, because, um, you know, I went when I went to the embassy, um, they can give you a B1 visa to like come and do like observerships because, you know, um, but like you had to be here for six months at a time, then you leave and you come back. So that was what I did. Yeah, and that's I did the same thing. I did my rotations on a B1, B2. And then I left the country probably once or twice, but then I started extending while I was in the United States. Like I would oh. extend through the USCIS, but it was a very cumbersome process because you had to start your application like maybe three months before oh. it expires. And then USCIS had 90 days to process and you wanted to get a response before you expire. Otherwise you become oh. like your status is not legal anymore. I didn't so, even know that you could extend. Yeah, um, yeah, you can it's not easy, but it's, it's possible. And, um, and all the stuff is on the USCIS website for anybody listening who is like, oh, I didn't know I could extend. You can't. And I didn't even use an attorney, not because I'm great, but because I couldn't afford it. And yeah. so a lot of times I was doing these applications by myself. And I had a group of friends who were also from different countries that were in that same predicament. And yeah. so all respects, they showed me the ropes. And so 
once I figured out the website to go, which is USCIS.org, um, you could just type in extend my visa and they have step-by-step -step forms and everything that you can do on there. But I digress. So you did a B1. Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. So I guess, let me just ask because I'm curious. Um, so yeah. when you extend, will it be for six months or a year? Yeah, or so Cameroon, you can only extend for six months at a time. Okay, um, okay. I think each country has their own regulations. Like my roommate was from India and she had a 10-year visa. So she didn't yeah. have much of an issue um, with, with that whole renewing and, and such. But I, I Cameroon had a six-month limit at that time. And I had another friend that was out of friend from Uganda, Nigeria. And then there was another Cameroonian as well. And then one guy from, um, I forget the country. But there were several of us who used to do this process and kind of help one yeah. another. Yeah. So you, you did your clinicals on a B1, B2. Now, some people may think, wow, you're a visa applicant. How'd you get 12 interviews? Like, what would you say to that? Well, um, I guess, um, you know, the thing is you have to really apply strategically, I would say. Um, number one is I you should apply to programs that have like, you know, a lot more like the take a lot more IMGs I would say um I'm obviously I mean you're free to like apply to as many programs as you um want but you know for me when I was applying I didn't really have a lot of money so um back then so I had to you know like apply strategically I think I probably applied to like maybe like maybe 100 programs which I know like it's you know IMGs we get to applied to a lot of programs. Um, but, you know, me getting like 12 was a pretty good ratio because um, it was like less than one in 10 or something. Um, but yeah, but, you know, I think it's important that you apply strategically and more to like programs that, you know, that take more IMGs like you. Because I also look like at a time there were some programs that took IMGs, but they took specifically like SGU or Ross, you know, and those kind of programs. I think some of them I still apply to, but some of them I just ignored, you know, and I try to, yeah. So that's number one. And then um, number two, like, you know, it's always good. Like, you know, if you really like a program, you can, you know, just like send out an email and, you know, just tell them your interested and you know you never know so yeah no absolutely because one of the things I get from IMGs obviously who didn't go to Ross or SGU and even the ones that have been to those bigger name schools is they feel like oh their school is not well known right so they're not from a popular school um, just like you I also transferred from completing my bachelor I didn't complete my bachelor's but I transferred into like a pre-med program into the Caribbean um, and so you know, you feel already that you're working against the clock because you don't have like the traditional credentials that yeah. everybody else has. And so those are like some red flags that make us feel sensitive about what we're presenting to programs. Yeah. Um, so getting that number of interviews, would you attribute that to like USMLE performance and your networking is kind of what I'm hearing? Oh, yeah, definitely. My USMLE performance was above average. So um, it wasn't like 99 percentile, I would say, but it was also like above like the year I took it. It was definitely above the average internal medicine, you know, American graduate internal medicine applicant. So, um, yeah, so definitely that that helped for sure. Um, like yeah, that. And I wanted you to talk about that because obviously I know what your score was. And I remember us having that conversation at some point in the past. Yeah. But I wanted you to talk about that because I feel like a lot of times we forget that something as good as the USMLE, and in this case now is the CK that's taking yeah. over, which if you're applying to internal medicine, CK is really important anyways. Yeah. Um, but we forget that you can have some of these red flags that we worry about. Yeah. Really well on your boards and it still brings you at a level that's more competitive than where you were when you were yeah. just in as a non-traditional person as a visa applicant and all this other stuff oh then, yeah yeah you know yeah then layering that with the networking as well and um you know all the things that you did I think that that's a really good strategy yeah yeah definitely I mean because the thing is I you know, I just wasn't going to take any chances, you know, so I made sure I really studied hard for my um, exams. Um, and, you know, now I know that a step one is just pass or fail. So I don't know that it's going to help a lot of IMGs, you know, like, you know, like, 
as long as you pass, you're just going to get a pass. I don't know if the, you know, like your particular score is not going to help. But yeah, like you said, CK is definitely going to help, you know. And now we don't have CS anymore even. So I guess they just take only step one and step two CK now, right? And yeah. step three. So that's pretty easy, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Um, but I still think, I think where step one has moved away from the pass, from a numerical score to a pass-fail, the emphasis is going to be on CK. And, yeah. and then for those who have graduated medical school, I think there's a, it's a subtle expectation that they have done step three, um, even yeah. though it's not, it can be mandated, even though some programs will say, I am just must have step three, but I, yeah. I think it can, it can be made universal because you as grads are not expected to do that. Um, so I think that that definitely, the, the focus shifts from like step one to CK. Now, yeah. so, so, you know, obviously you went to residency, so you had these 12 interviews, so let's just recap for anybody that's not tracking with us, right? Moved from Nigeria, did not complete medical school in Nigeria, transferred into the Caribbean. Um, so non-traditional in a sense, gets into the Caribbean, goes to All Saints, which is, I mean, it's like my school wasn't the most popular of schools in the Caribbean, but yeah. still did well on board, still was able to excel on boards despite not having the golden platter. Mm-hmm. And then um, did all of your rotations on a B1, B2, and then applying to residency for a J1. Got 12 interviews, went on interviews, matched at your number one at Morehouse. Now you've graduated residency. Tell us, when did you graduate and what have you been doing since? Yeah, I graduated um, June 2019. So, oh my gosh, like three and a half years ago. Yeah. So um, obviously when I graduated, because um, I was on J1, like we were talking about, I had to do like a Conrad 30 waiver. So um, I got that in Tennessee. Um, so I did that and I, I I didn't really start in Tennessee till October. So I completed my, like October 2019. So I completed my three years because the Conrad 30 waiver basically means um, you have to, um, you know, work in an underserved area for three years, you know, since you're not going back to your country for two years, because it's either you have to go back to your country for two years or working in an underserved area here in America for three years. So um, I completed that in October. And so last year, I also applied for um, critical care fellowship. So I luckily got in. So that's the next step now. Well, congratulations on getting into critical care. I think that's a big, that's a pretty big deal. So we should celebrate that for sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, I wish you were still here. <laughs> I know, I know. I wish I was still in Tennessee so we could celebrate together. But I think that's another point that we should maybe just talk about. Um, and I don't want to forget is I'm just going to mention it. We we should talk about fellowship um, on a visa and how that process looks like, if you want to share on that. But let's just talk about the Conrad 30 before we move forward, because some people may not be familiar with it. And I actually had to pull up their website, which mm-hmm. is basically USCIS.gov, guys. And mm-hmm. the English on the website is so easy that everybody can understand. You don't have to be an immigration lawyer to yeah. understand it. But the Conrad 30 waiver program allows J-1 foreign medical graduates to apply for a waiver of the two-year foreign residence requirement upon finishing their J-1 exchange visitor program. So that means if you were in residency, on a J-1, you have the capability of converting or like not going to back to your home country and waiving that requirement to be able to complete this waiver inside the United States. Yeah. So it's a waiver meaning it waives the previous requirement that existed. Yeah. Um, and the goal of this program was to address shortage of uh, qualified doctors in medically underserved areas. Yeah. And the reason I want to emphasize that is people are so, they've got this thing mixed up. They yeah. want a day one waiver, but they don't want to work in an underserved area. I'm like, that's not possible. <laughs> like you have to work in an underserved area. But I also think the mix up is because they think the underserved area has to be in the middle of Pole Down, Kentucky, right? Like, yeah, be, like out in the boonies somewhere, which is also not <laughs> always the case. Yeah, so I think it's important that we share that. And we, I'll tell you where I did my J1 and you can share where you did your J1 so people can yeah. know. But the J1 foreign medical graduate, there are certain things that the person must have done. They must have been admitted to the United States yeah. under the Section 101 of the INA to receive graduate medical training. And for them to have been able to do that, they had to obtain a no objection statement from their home country, releasing them from yeah. that sort of contractual obligation to go back to their home country. 
upon yeah. completing the exchange program. So like I mentioned in the beginning for our listeners, the exchange program was made so that you as the foreign physician, I leave Cameroon, I come to the States, I learn medicine, mm-hmm. I go back to Cameroon and I use my skills in Cameroon to benefit my people. The yeah. United States has given that exchange of knowledge. Yeah. Now with these waivers, they're giving us an opportunity to do that exchange here, but we're going to meet their need in their yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to see it. Right, I, and right. So I thought if I explain it, it makes it clear because I get a lot of questions about this. That's why I invited you that we talk about it. Yeah. So, so to get a no objection statement means your government from your home country yeah. has to give a letter, which for my, my country was the Ministry of Public Health. What was yeah. it? Yeah, I think honestly, like this was, when did you get your own? When did you get your no objection statement? Was it after residency or before residency? I got it while I was in residency because I had to, you know, you have to get your job secured by October of the year before. Yeah, yeah. So I got mine in 2000. I graduated residency in, in 2015. So I think I applied for my no objection 2014. Okay, yeah, I think I, probably got mine like honestly this has been so far behind but I probably got mine like oh because I remember I got my job in 2018 so I probably got it then but I'm also wondering like do every country need the no objection statement I wasn't sure if it was every country that needed it or I, I know I got something from my minister of health so yeah. it's probably that I like I I, every I J1 needs okay. an objection because okay. that's what they're yeah. saying on the on the USAIS website oh yeah so then the next thing they say is you must uh, you must agree to begin employment at the healthcare facility that is specified on the waiver here in the United States within 90 days of receiving the waiver. So yeah. you get your no objection letter. Yeah. You must start employment within 90 days of when you've been approved the waiver by the U.S. State Department. Yeah. So there's so many moving parts, guys, and I don't want to confuse anyone. And I'm not an immigration attorney by any stretch. But the key thing is during residency, you'll be looking for a job like everybody else. Yeah. Only difference is when you talk to a recruiter, you would tell them that you have a J-1. Yeah. Recruiters that work with J-1 doctors know what we need. Yeah. And so if, if, they, if they don't work with you, the first question you ask a recruiter is, do you work with J-1 doctors? Have you placed any J-1 doctors? Yeah. The first question, don't even give them your CV. If they don't <laughs> say yes, then then there's a conversation ended. That's how I yeah. triage. Because yeah. I noticed I was talking to a lot of people and some of the recruiters are helpful because they'll ask you, do you yeah. need a visa? And then you're like, yes. They're like, okay, sorry, I don't do the visa, but I'll refer you to someone that does. Person, yeah. And that's the thing also, guys, like if you want a J, have a J1 or need a J1, yeah. ask them to refer you to their partner who does the J1. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of them actually also have like lawyers anyway. Um, yeah. And also something else I would say, it's it's not just the recruiter. I feel that um, whoever is on J1 applying for you know, like a J1 position should do their due diligence um, because especially because a lot of us are IMGs from, you know, different kinds, like different schools, for example, you have to make sure number one that like the state license, especially because at a time you're applying, you haven't passed your boards. Um, some of some of the states, like I remember, like some states will like follow, like say uh, back then, I think now California has a more uniform, you know, like, I don't know, like they have a more uniform accepted medical school directory. But, you know, back then they were like a California list of, uh, you know, approved medical schools and some states will follow that, you know. So you have to also just do your due diligence before you even like go, even if the recruiter deals with J1 people, um, you have to make sure that like, you know, you're someone that is capable of being licensed in the state that, you know, that you're going for your J1 waiver, especially if you haven't passed your your boards like which you wouldn't have taken your boards when if you're applying during your second year of residency yeah and I think that's a key point too because I remember we had this conversation back in the day when you were going through this process um, about the California list because there are some states that will give you trouble with medical licensure doesn't mean you wouldn't get a license yeah it's just gonna be you have to present to the board and Tennessee was one of those states yeah no Tennessee (laughs) Yeah, Tennessee one of those because I never got a full license to practice in Tennessee, which is fine because I didn't need one. Yeah, but I got the training license through yeah. 
the University of Tennessee. And I was like, I'm not moonlighting in Tennessee. I was going to be there for a year for fellowship. So I didn't yeah. go through the process. But I remember the one time I looked into it, and one of the reasons I was worried about applying to fellowship at the University of Tennessee was because I was worried about their their Tennessee being on the California list. And my school yeah. wasn't on that list at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you were able to get your training license, right? Yes, I did get the yeah. training license without any issues. But I'm just saying like, you know, I know that I remember you told me you had to go to the Yeah, board. yeah. So because with okay. Tennessee, as long as they would give you a temporary license until, you know, you pass your boards, which you wouldn't pass your boards till, you know, end of your third year if you are doing a three-year internal medicine residency or family medicine residency. So, um, and the thing is you need to like get all those docs in order, you know, before like, you know, way before your third year. So yeah, that's definitely, but I think now the California list is different now. Anyway, they use like a wall directory because I was actually able to get a California medical license as well, um, like last year. But um, yeah, but just in 2019, it was really, really different. Yeah, so I, I think that a lot has changed. And one thing I must say is, guys, when you see some of these regulations, it doesn't mean you cannot proceed. It just means you need to find the exception exactly. and how to go around it. Because once you get a medical license in one state, you will eventually be able to get licenses in other states mm-hmm. through reciprocity, but it takes a process. Like you may find yourself having to call the board. You may find yourself doing a little bit extra work, mm-hmm. but don't let these rules stop you. That's, I think that's my key point that I just want to make now. Giving some more insight to the future day one doctor who's listening to us. Um, yeah. Now, the, the process is convoluted. So as we mentioned, one, you need a job that's mm-hmm. willing to sponsor the visa. Yeah. But that's just like the tip of the iceberg because what happens behind the scenes is actually more important, which is- Oh, yeah. There is that you have to, you have to apply for the waiver. Yeah. The waiver must be sponsored by a state health department or its equivalent. Yeah. State that you're doing your residency and you may start there and say, okay, I'm currently, for me, I was living in Kentucky. I was doing my residency in Kentucky. So I applied to the state health department of Kentucky. The way I did that was I found a recruiter who Mm -hmm. was in Kentucky, who had worked with J1 graduates from from University of Kentucky, where I was my sponsoring organization for my residency. And so because he had worked with J1s before me, this was like a piece of cake yeah. So he knew every step of the way, he knew every paperwork. But the key item, which I'm reading on the USCIS, USCIS website, is they want you to obtain sponsorship of a state health department. And then you have to complete a US Department of State Form DS 3035, which is the J1 visa waiver review application. Yeah. So those are the two steps that you have to do along with your recruiter who's helping you on this. A lawyer. Or your lawyer, right? Your lawyer. Uh, lawyer is better. Yeah. So then they submit that application to the Department of State. The mm-hmm. Department of State would then make a recommendation to the USCIS. Exactly. Yeah. They would say, okay, we've reviewed this application. We see that Kentucky needs 10, 20, 30 primary care physicians in this county. Mm-hmm. They, this county wants a higher... Dr. Ify or Dr. Loom. Yes, we approved that. Um, in my case, it was Laurel County. No, it was, yeah, Laurel County was the name of the county. Needs physicians. And so, and they determine the shortage by using um, demographic data that they have yeah, by the U.S. foreign, yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about that. Like they know what's underserved and what isn't. And you'd be surprised what's underserved. So now when they make that recommendation, then the, so just to backtrack, so Department of State will make a recommendation to the USCIS. That is the Federal Immigration Service. Yeah. I now approve for the state of Kentucky to get 30 waivers for family medicine or internal medicine or pathology or pediatrics or OBGYN for this yeah. year because they're short. And then that allows that state to approve of your job or your job listing or whatever the case. Um, yeah. And then me as the J1 recipient or visa yeah. holder, I get a letter. Yeah. I remember getting a letter from the Department of State. Yeah. That, I got some also communication from USCIS too mm-hmm. that says you've been granted the waiver and that allows you to proceed with your contracts and obligations. And, and yeah. you have to, you also now have to apply and change it. Yeah. But it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a lot. And that's why 
I would say um, everybody that wants to, you know, be on a J-1 waiver should definitely get a job with, you know, like basically get a job that has a good immigration, you know, employment immigration lawyer. Um, because for me, um, my lawyer luckily just took care of all the steps because there were just so many steps and all I needed to do was fill forms if needed and, you know, just wait, you know? Um, also another thing, cause, and that's why obviously you have to start like a year ahead, honestly, because a lot of the um, I don't know if we've talked about this, but a lot of states, their spots get filled, I think maybe by October. I mean, there are some other states that are not like very competitive to get in. Um, and it's like on a rolling basis. Um, I think Tennessee is probably on a rolling basis. I think, I don't know. Um, but a lot, a lot of the states get, you know, their spots can get filled by October. So, and it's usually on a first come first serve basis. I think I might, right? agree like a lot of states have a like a first come first serve kind of rule policy thing going yeah. so if they feel they may say they have only 30 spots for example and if they fill their 30 spots then you're they're capped out and so then yeah. you can't get for that year you have to wait for the following year so exactly you start early so i usually recommend that img start looking about beginning of second year if you're in the three three-year program yeah start getting your feet wet by halfway through PGY2, you should really kind of have an idea of what's going on so that in PGY3, you're finishing out your paperwork. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think some of the, um, that's something, um, you know, some IMGs might want to know because I think some of the Southern states like have like an Appalachian waiver or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't take that pathway, but I think when the Conrad 30, because the Conrad 30 has those 30 spots that gets filled, so, for example, I think Tennessee probably like their 30 spots might be filled by October, November, whatever. But um, the Appalachian whatever um, waiver, you know, can like kind of I don't know if he has a cap or not. So I don't know. anybody. Yeah. That so the, it's called the Appalachian Regional Commission. OK, and it is committed to helping the residents of Appalachian areas to access quality, affordable health. Mm -hmm. So under certain conditions, and this is from the ARC.gov website, um, it says the ARC will consider recommending a waiver of the foreign residence requirement on behalf of physicians holding J-1 visas in health professional shortage areas to address the region's healthcare needs. So there are several states that fall under the Appalachian region, and it starts all the way from like up somewhere upstate New York down through Virginia. Um, parts of West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Upper yeah, Georgia. Yeah. So it's a very large area yeah. that it covers. And don't be afraid because you don't have to live in these areas if you don't want to live there. Um, but you have to meet your minimum work requirement that's expected of you. So if you go on arc.gov, you'll find they have a list of like their visa application checklist. They have um, their policy statements, employment letter, employer letter outline, they even have like, like swipe files. They tell exactly what the employer needs to write. So this is, especially if you're going to work for a private practice, that's going to help you out with this. Mm -hmm. They have all the directions for you. I worked for a corporation, meaning like a large hospital system. So they had tons of J1 doctors before me. I didn't yeah. have to lift a finger. I was just, I remember working with an attorney yeah. Um, Vanessa Shekin was my attorney out of New York, and I'll put her email in this as well. V-S-E-C-K-I-N at SheckinLaw.com. And we'll put it in the show notes. But she was phenomenal. I mean, she held, literally held my hand. Like I'll get folders in the mail with like where to sign, like just put yeah. your signature here, just, you know, provide this list of documents. So yeah. that really helped. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I think that, you told me about her. Yeah. How was your, how was your um, attorney? Yeah. I mean, my attorney was okay. Um, Obviously. Yeah. When I first started, I think towards the end, they got a little bit busier. So they're not like very responsive. So I just wanted to say who they are. Um, Yeah. But yeah, definitely at the beginning, it was really good, but towards the end, um, because at first I was thinking of maybe doing my green card through my work. 
Um, they had like a really good paralegal that was, you know, taking care of everything. Because a lot of this, especially if they're big time, you know, like immigration, you know, um, law offices, um, they get paralegals to actually do the work for them, not necessarily the attorney. Um, but the paralegal that was working on my case, she left and um, there was like a new one. And I guess because she's new, she didn't really know what she was doing. So I wouldn't really just like <laughs> mention them right it now. Wasn't as pleasant, <laughs> yeah, because I it was more like I'm waiting like three months for like, like they were supposed to like file my green card um, petition. I think they were supposed to file it in October or November and they ended up filing it around March. And I was like, what? Like, this is just taking long, you know? Um, Obviously, I mean, I was already on top of things because they were doing this, I think, in my second year of my waiver. So I still had time anyway, but, you know, like the delay wasn't really like something I was hoping for. But anyway, because I ended up matching, in fellowship, matching into fellowship, um, because again, I wouldn't be able to like do my own adjustment of status because the work can file the petition for you. But because you're on Conrad 30 waiver, you can't file your own part, which is the adjustment of status part till you're done with your waiver. And I was going to be done with my waiver, like I said, in October, you know, this past year, and then I'll be going over to fellowship. So um, there wasn't really enough time for me to like, you know, get my green card. Cause I think after you get your green card, you're also supposed to stay another like six months or so with the place before you were able to leave. So I, I just did that like through my husband. So I'm actually like still like waiting, but yeah, so that's where we are right now. I'm pretty sure that you'll get it before. You, I'm not worried. You, you yeah, just... I mean, I'm hoping I'll get it like this year. Yeah, so. yeah, it will work out. It definitely will work out. So yeah. do you want to tell us about your fellowship application? Like how, how was being an IMG, how did that impact your application in any way? Do you think that even matters? I don't think so, but yeah, well, I actually, well, I think in a good way, you know, because like the program I matched, um, my program director was, you know, like was impressed with, you know, like my journey and, you know, so I think it mattered in a good way, in a positive way. Yeah. Because as IMGs, I feel, um, you know, I mean, obviously everybody works hard, you know, but sometimes when you're an IMG, you might just work a little bit harder because you don't have a lot of resources. Like you don't, you might not even have like good like teachers. You a lot of things is just kind of like self thought, self learned, you know. Or you know, you're watching a lot of like YouTube, you know, like medical learning videos or podcasts, listen to podcasts like yours. So we just have to kind of forge our own way sometimes. And um, yeah, so I think like that was really um, like I think it was like you know it was it mattered in a good way basically. Um, but I think really, once you get into residency in America, I think, um, you know, the field is a little bit level, I would say, you know, because um, I know someone that went to my school, um, he ended up in like Vanderbilt for like cardiology fellowship. Um, I personally did not apply to Vanderbilt myself, but um, yeah, but I think as long as you put in the hard work, I think the playing fielders level really um for fellowship i agree because i think at some point you can you can let go of the scales off your back you know you can yeah. allow your hard work to begin to speak for you it's really in the beginning when you're first finishing medical school that it's probably the most you receive the most bias but once you get into residency that bias sort of decreases slowly over a period of time doesn't automatically just disappear. You still have to show you prove your worth at work, especially. But it's certainly much different um, over a period of time. I, I agree. So yeah, I think um, yeah, I think you're right. Like, um, I mean, obviously, I mean, for me personally, I feel like I'm still like conscious of it, you know. So obviously, I always I still like work hard, like you know, work really, really hard. Like I don't take anything for granted. I'm not really you know, I don't know how to say, like, I'm not really just like relaxed and like, okay, whatever. Um, I'm so like yeah. putting in the work, like, you know, cause sometimes, I mean, you know, um, 
there's still like people that can you know scrutinize you but that also comes with you know um sometimes being a woman or a woman of color yeah. or whatever so um those those are like definitely confounding factors and <laughs> yeah no word absolutely um yeah there's so many things that come into play and you wonder is like what part of it is is this what is it, is it my my sex my gender my race my visa the fact that I'm a foreign like what you don't know what part you don't even know which one it is (laughs) I I just tell myself at some point I I don't even bother there's just some things I don't sweat anymore you know yeah just have to do your best you know and yeah I give my I give my 100% and I let God do the rest like I don't even yeah I don't sweat the small stuff anymore I think my first few years of practice I was one to be worried about all that now I'm just like I don't care I'm here to take (laughs) patients I do my so work. Attending now. <laughs> yeah, I do my work and I'm out. You know. So, how was your own fellowship? Like, how was your fellowship? Uh, my fellowship was so. My fellowship was like obviously it was at a level one center. Yeah. Oh, so there was it was a little bit. So the program itself wasn't like malignant per se, but the atmosphere. It's a very old school mindset. Yeah. So you go to some programs where there are more like equality. There's not a whole lot of senioritis going on. Yeah. <laughs> But my program, my location, I think is just still stuck in that um, senioritis thing. Yeah. They were so big on your PGY level. Oh, wow. Um, You know, you obviously had, you know, you had residencies in like other residents from different programs. I think they had general surgery, trauma surgery, fellowship, pathology residency, internal medicine. OBGYN residencies so several residencies in one place yeah and we obviously co-rotate and several fellowships as well so there was it was a cutthroat environment I would say like you had to prove yourself every day yeah especially in emergency medicine where you're the front line and it's very high intensity anyways yeah had, I think our emergency medicine department was under the department of surgery yeah and so it was very much working with surgeons more than working with um yeah like, like, yeah. like medicine people and yeah. medicine people are more you know they like to talk they're more wordy surgeons are not always the case and especially in that, in that kind of I think their program is malignant if you ask me like the surgery program there yeah but, <laughs> so I felt like it was a little bit um I definitely struggled I struggled with coming back to that mindset of being talked to like a wow. resident yeah I I, it was it'd been six years since I had anybody talk to me like that so I found it really disrespectful even though I was in the role of a PGY4 as a fellow so it, it it was just one of those things where I had to constantly remind myself no you are indeed the resident or the fellow here so you're still at the bottom of the totem pole um but I had a hard time with that and I think that played a lot on my level of unhappiness during my training was really around those types of things because I was learning a lot I was enjoying the medical side um, learning all these great surgical skill as well um, and procedural skill but it was it was hard just taking orders and sort of sort of um, succumbing to seniors for lack of better words mm-hmm. um, yeah and I think there was also in the emergency department there was a bias against non-EM trained physicians who were coming into EM training yeah. that we didn't know much about EM. And so for someone like myself, I didn't feel like, yeah, I didn't know. I wanted to learn more about EM, but my general medical knowledge was pretty solid to where EM training just had to add to it. It wasn't like I was learning from scratch, but I think maybe in the past they've had maybe people who came from clinical settings, like outpatient settings coming mm-hmm. to emergency medicine to start different, right? Um, so I could, in the beginning, I found myself having to work hard to show that I had the medical knowledge and I just needed some help with the emergency aspect and mindset and things that differ. And over time, I was able to gain sort of that reciprocal respect, but it didn't come easy. Yeah, it never does. <laughs> and you'll see this when you go into fellowship and you're now the junior fellow. Yeah. Um, and you've been an attending for three years, it would feel weird at first because you're just like, I called the shots where I came from. Like, I don't ask anybody for permission. I do what I think is necessary. And now I'm like, wait, I have to talk to somebody. Um, It's a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. 
but I, I mean I'm excited because I feel like there's just so much that I I still need to learn like you know I would like to learn so um yeah, yeah I would yeah there's I mean there's and that's the that's the that, that that's what kept me going is I would just wake up and I'll look at my journal that I kept before I went to fellowship of the things that I wanted to learn I had a yeah. list of what I wanted to learn and every time I would do one of those things I'll check it off you know yeah. like you know chest tube check it off um you know I get oh another intubation check it off another intubation another code another um deep line blind deep line like doing a line without um, wow ultrasound. like uh ultrasound yeah like you know in, like, in code, for example like in a, in a code right you have to drop a fem line really fast sometimes you just have to use landmarks because i mean by the time you grab ultra like that's time you just need to be able to get the meds in wow um you do like ios <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we did IOS too, but I think for our training, they wanted us to be able to learn how to do femlines, especially okay. for like DKA people. Yeah. You know, like a lot of DKA people don't have access, but they're awake. You can't be IOing them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it was just like every day I would do, or when I saw, I used to go to the pediatric ER. And so I didn't have a lot of PEDS experience in the ER per se. So every day after my shift, I'll count my patients. Like yeah. how many cases I see today, how many PEDS traumas you know, how many piece procedures did I do giving ketamine to kids and doing minor procedures on the ketamine for a child that was different for me. Like I was like, so worried, like, what if I do too much medicine or, you know, you think about the worst, right? Conscious sedation for a child. It's like, whoa, yeah. you know? So every time I would do that, I would check off that box. So I think keeping a mental tab of what you want to learn definitely yeah. keeps you happy because then you go home and you can forget about the pressures of the day and the negativity yeah. and the fights and the bickering yeah. and you could just focus on oh wow checking off my list for you maybe okay I did a bronc today I saw this I did this you know and, and you just keep going you just keep yeah. going yeah yeah I'm looking forward to that and I'll definitely you know like I'll do I'll have a list like what you you did you yeah know? it keeps you a little bit excited about life yeah yeah because that shows well, you're growing yeah absolutely that's the only way to grow you know, we could talk forever um, just because that's what we do when we meet up. But let's, oh. <laughs> let's make sure that our listeners get some final words of wisdom from you. Do you have any tips for success for the IMG that's listening? Um, well, I mean, basically what we said, you know, like what what was the word you said? Like you have to drop the chips off your back. Was that what you said? Or oh, yeah. Like, you know, yeah, the skills, get the skills. Off yeah. Get the skills off your back. Yeah. Because. I think personally for me, like, you know, that's something I, I struggled with, you know, always just thinking about like all my weaknesses or all the things that, you know, I feel like I don't measure up like, you know, my pedigree or whatever, like I don't measure up with other people. Um, but just knowing that, you know, like you have what it takes, like you're hardworking, you're intelligent, you know, you have like the determination, you know, you're like, a self-starter, go-getter, you know, you have all this, you know, positives about you. So you just, you know, just keep going and, you know, like you might have like detractors or like be heavily scrutinized or, you know, my, you know, not have people believe in you. It doesn't really matter. You just, you know, just keep going on your own path. And, you know, like each time you conquer like a little, you know, like a little obstacle, it gives you strength to know that you will conquer like you know, the next one. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I like to draw strength from past experiences. Yeah. Because every time you, every time you get one thing done, it gives you the tenacity to see yourself as being able to do the next. The next. Yeah. I think that's a really good one. Um, Guys, thank you for listening today. And as a reminder, I do have a course that I did on my visa process. Um, It doesn't include the details of the J1 as well. It does have some, but it walks you through everything from my F1B to, J to B1 to H1. Um, and it's on my website, imgroadmap.com. It's free. So do check it out if you have questions and doubts. Um, but thank you so much for coming, Dr. Ify. How can an IMG reach out to you with questions? Um, yeah, um, sure. Like, well, I have like a shorter email, um, icdwrites at gmail.com. So um, I mean, I guess I can write it down and you can add it there. If, yeah, you um, just spell, spell it out too so that when we're listening, driving, we can remember it. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, I as in India, C as in California, D as in dog, writes like writes a letter um, okay. at gmail.com. 
So okay. ICDWrites at gmail.com. We'll have that in the show notes for sure as well so that the listener can um, yeah. make some emails and write them out to you. Yeah, you if they have any you questions, I'll be happy to answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. I'm glad we got to do this because we were both like at the <laughs> end of the day, you know, it's uh, we're recording on a Sunday and it's just, I know. it's a family oh. day for me. And I'm just like, oh. I was like trying to give you a way out. Like if you're tired, that's fine. <laughs> I'll just, yeah, just sit on the couch. Yeah. You're like, let's do it. Let's do it. So oh, I'm yeah, it's like point. those friends that want to meet up and then you're like, oh, I'm tired. I'm tired. So, yeah. I am. <laughs> I'm like, now it's time to actually show up and I don't feel like showing up. Yeah. Um, so thank you for I'm so coming. glad we're able to do it because I know you're back to work on Tuesday, maybe right? Or yeah, yeah, I go back on Tuesday. Yeah, same. So and tomorrow we're traveling, so I was like, we should do it today. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. Appreciate. Yeah. It. No, thank you for inviting me on your amazing podcast show. <laughs> Thanks so much. I'm honored. <laughs> and you're doing such a great, you know, such a great thing. I wish I had a resource like that when I was. And I am due with, you know, so many questions and you really helped me like even before you started your podcast with all my questions. So thank you so much. Yeah, I remember I was like, if you always had questions, like, you had, <laughs> oh my gosh, I was like, dang. And it was good for me because I realized that I was getting these questions from several IMGs. And so yeah. I, was like, you know what? I need to create some resources that can live on and help other people who maybe don't have direct access to me. And so, and that's what the podcast is doing now because I get emails from people who are like, I've listened to your podcast and I've been learning so much. I'm like, but we've never talked, you know? Yeah. So um, keep listening, guys. Share with your friends. Please review this episode if you enjoyed it. Give us a five-star review. Leave us a comment and share it with three other IMGs who are on a visa. If you know an IMG who's on a visa, even if you're not on a visa, share it with the people in your class who you know are going to need this information because it's so important and there's not a lot of information yeah. for us. Yeah. yeah. All right. Very well. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Look at you. I'm so proud of you for listening until the very end. And because of that, you deserve a reward. And I want you to go right now to drninaloom.com and download any of my free ebooks, whether it's for electives or clinical rotations, or even just whatever trials come your way as you navigate your IMG journey. Stay tuned for another episode coming up next.